Discernment. That is one of the things many people say they're very good at, but sometimes the people doing discernment need to have a little bit of discernment. A lot of people say we should not judge, and yet the scriptures seem to say that we should. How do we tackle these type of topics? That is what we're going to discuss today with a special guest on The Rap Report. Welcome to The Rap Report with Andrew Rappaport, where we provide biblical interpretations and applications. This is a ministry of striving for eternity and the Christian podcast community. For more content or to request a speaker for your church, go to strivingforeternity.org. All right. Well, welcome to another edition of The Rap Report. And I will give a warning up front. I have interviewed our special guest before, and I know that it can go anywhere. I never know where conversations may go with him. But before I get there, let me tell you about something that we're doing for our monthly supporters. And that is that if you go out to our Patreon page, if you happen to decide that you want to help support us at Striving for Eternity and the Christian podcast community, this is what we're doing for our supporters. And what we're doing is that if you choose to donate as little as $2 a month, that's it, just $2 a month, you will get a free copy of What Do We Believe? If you choose to give up to $5, it's basically a cup of coffee, it's Starbucks, you will get two books, What Do We Believe? and What Do They Believe? If you choose to give up to $10 a month, we will add a third book, which is the book on the origin of kinds. And if you want to give a whopping $20 a month, you will actually get four books. We will add in a book called Sharing the Good News with Mormons. By the way, that book retails for $20 by itself. So there's more things that we have on the Patreon page, or you can just go to Striving for Eternity slash donate. And get the link there. If you want to go to our Patreon page, you can search for Striving for Eternity under Patreon and get it there. And either way you give, whether through PayPal or Patreon, we'll give you those books for supporting us in this ministry. And we thank you ahead of time for that. And now, on to our special guest. Uh, he is none other than Todd Friel of Wretched Radio. He is recently the winner of the Top Christian Podcast Award from the Christian Podcast Community, which we're a part of. And so we welcome to the, to the airwaves, Todd Friel. Welcome. <sighs> I'm exhausted. The celebrating we've been doing around here. <laughs> you got a cake? <laughs> <laughs> no, but we got a logo from you. That's something. I, I want to see you with a cake celebrating. That's what I... <laughs> No, 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 no cake, but thank you for the honor. Well, you, you recently, well, maybe now not so recently because you've written some other books since then. You wrote a book called Judge Not. Uh-huh. And you subtitled it, How a Lack of Discernment Led to Drunken Pastors, Peanut Butter <laughs> Armpits, and the Fall of a Nation. Um, you, you, in your ministry, you've often shown the issue that the church has some responsibility for the culture, for the fact that we're not, we're not rightly doing what the church should be doing. And what often comes up is the question of, you know, should we even be judging? 
I think the, the title of your book, and I'll, I'll announce later that we're going to be giving away five signed copies that Todd, you know, had provided for us. Um, but it says, judge not with the not crossed out. Should we judge is really my first question for you. Well, according to Matthew seven fifteen, we are to beware of false prophets. How can we do that if we don't judge? Romans sixteen seventeen. mark those which cause division contrary to what you have learned. How can we mark them if we don't do any judging? Jude 3, contend earnestly for the faith. In other words, judge the bad, discern the good, be a Berean who searches the scriptures. Jesus said, people tend to quote Matthew 7, judge not lest ye be judged, but they forget John 7, which teaches us to judge with a righteous judgment. So you've got two verses in contradistinction, it appears. Matthew 7, don't judge. John 7 saying, judge. So which is it? And the answer is, we judge rightly with the right attitude, and we don't judge censoriously with an attitude, nitpicking, being a fruit counter for people. It's all Jesus' command in Matthew 7 is all about heart not whether or not we should be judging, because if Jesus was actually claiming in Matthew 7, don't judge, ever, um, that is fraught with problems. Number one, Jesus was making a judgment call when he said, don't judge, that, that, that that's a good thing to do. So he'd be breaking his command if it were intended to mean, don't judge anything ever. Second, Jesus in the same passage, not only to tell tells us to judge people, but he judges some people to be dogs and swine. That's pretty judgmental. Jesus tells us to judge with righteous judgment. If Jesus had contradicted himself, then then we've got ourselves a problem with the Bible. All saints, we will judge the world, 1 Corinthians 6.2. Jesus was kind of judgmental when he called some Pharisees sons of hell, blind guides, hypocrites, whitewashed tombs. And finally, Andrew, not judging is just bonkers. I mean, if Jesus' command were just a blanket, Christians never judge, then you're not going to know what to order at Chick-fil-A because you can't judge anything. When I'm on the street, you and I both do open-air evangelism. When I'm on the street and people say, you shouldn't judge for effect, what I always say is, I think it's perfectly okay to judge. I'm married. And I just give silence for them to try to figure out what I'm talking about. (laughs) And then I say, I judge many women inappropriate for me to marry. And one that I said was appropriate for me to marry. That's a judgment call. Of course it is. We make a million of them every day. What socks you're going to put on. So Jesus wasn't commanding us to never judge or discern It would be contradicting a plethora of Bible verses. He's just telling us to do it with the right attitude. And I think this is helpful, Andrew, because look, I can be guilty of this. We all can when it comes to discernment. We tend to think that our amassed theological knowledge makes us smarter, better. You know, I can creep into our thinking. But when we remember that if we know anything about anything, it's only because God has revealed it to us, and that should keep us humble, and that is what Jesus is after when he says, judge not. Yeah, and you brought up the passage in John 7, which people don't realize, that's actually Jesus commanding us to judge. That judge there in Greek is an imperative. 
So when people say you shouldn't judge and they don't want to go to Matthew 7, here's John 7 where we're commanded by Jesus to judge. And, and you're right, Matthew 7, he, he now is judging right after that. So he, he'd be contradicting himself. Well, this is, this is, you know, a lot of this falls underneath the umbrella of just lack of theological training and hermeneutics in the flock, it's that they don't understand that Scripture interprets Scripture. You don't, don't just take one verse on a subject and say, that's everything that we need to know. You'll study all the verses so you can put together a, a systematic theology. So, when somebody says something like, well, Jesus said that we shouldn't judge anybody, you know, it's just revealing they don't have much knowledge of the Bible. Well, hermeneutics, uh, I think you agree, as you have a new version of Herman Who out, hermeneutics is, is so needed in the church today. Oh, it's, it's, it's crucial. Look, the Bible, there's a reason that the Bible was written the way that it was, two of them at least. Number one, it would be impractical to have a rule book to cover every situation in every Christian's life who ever lived. I mean, how thick would that, that, that it could, would fill the whole universe because of all the scenarios and decisions. So it doesn't give us a rule book. Second of all, if it did, so if the Bible were, were just like this, Andrew, you were wrong in that fight with your wife. Repent. Okay. Reading those types of things, page after page after page, would be tedious and boring. So God gives us this exciting book that is filled with poetry, heroism, historical narrative, apocalyptic literature, gospel biographies, epistles to churches, proverbs. And with that come some challenges. Paul said that we need to be a workman. That was his instruction to Timothy. Be a workman. We don't let go and let God lead us in the interpretation. We ask him for wisdom. We ask him for his help. But we are commanded, go to work on this and cut the word rightly. So there are some skills that need to be acquired in order to do that with a book that I don't like saying it's complex and confounding because the perspicuity of scripture, a child can get it, but... We should have some tools that help us to practice the art and science of interpreting Scripture. That's right. And and for folks that, you know, listen, perspicuity means clarity, which is what he went on to describe. And, and it is. It, it's clear. But whenever we do discernment, what we commonly hear is you shouldn't name names. Oh. Um, so let me ask it first this way. When is it appropriate for us to name names of other Christians or people that profess to be Christians? You know, it's, that's a great question because, quite honestly, you've got two extreme ditches on this. Most evangelicals are allergic to naming names. That is just the biggest taboo. You, you can go on Christian radio and say something like, um, there's, this, uh, there's this teacher who's not teaching truth. He wears a white Nehru jacket, supposedly heals people, has really wonky hair that makes Donald Trump actually go, wow, that's some bad hair. And he flies around the world in a private jet and he lives in the Ritz-Carlton in Los Angeles because he's bilking people out of money. And his name rhymes with gin. Well, that's okay, but don't ever name his name. So there's that's one side. 
of the equation. The other extreme is naming everybody's name about everything. So there are some rules that need to be applied to determining when we name names. And as you rightly said in your introduction, Andrew, I see a lot of discernment ministries that never pause and take the time to say, what are the rules of discernment before I turn on my microphone or write my blog? What are the rules? How do I apply them to this situation? And and that was the reason that I wanted to have you on, because as I look at different discernment ministries, and you, you are involved in discernment ministries, you are probably, I would say, the expert at that decision-making. Mm. You, you train people, and so many people don't realize that, because there's a lot of times on your show, you will say, and if, if there's anyone listening that doesn't listen to Wretched, what is wrong with you? I mean, look, folks, you may not need to listen to Wretched Radio to get to heaven, but why take the chance? I see. <laughs> well, I'd like to do some discerning right now on you. <laughs> Hey, I stole that from Erwin Lutzer, so. <laughs> that's funny. You know, he retired, and that's kind of a bummer. Yeah, he was, he was I, I got to sit under his teaching every year when he'd come to Jersey. I, I miss it. He, yeah, I, he I was good. driving, I think I had a rental car with Sirius Satellite Radio, and when I wasn't listening to the Elvis channel, I turned on the preaching, and I, I caught a service of theirs, and I, was, I didn't know who it was, and I was listening, and it's like, hey, this guy's good. Well, it was Erwin Lutzer. You know. The, the thing is this, on Wretched, you're constantly saying to people, something will happen. We don't know the details, but you, you're teaching people how to think through things, and you're always telling people we shouldn't name the name because the details could be, could be wrong, what we've got so far. You always wait until things are confirmed. That's why I, I wanted to have you on, because I think you're one of the experts Basically, you and Justin Peters are the two that I would say are the, the best when it comes to discernment ministries. And you're doing this on a regular basis and teaching people, even if they're not picking up on it, when we, we should and shouldn't name names. But I, don't, I haven't heard you actually explain what your thinking process on that. How do you go through and say, okay, what's the line? We're not going to go over this line because there always seems to be a, a, stop, a point where you stop yourself because you don't want to go over a certain line. So when do you, how do you judge when to name a name, when not to name a name? Uh, big, big question, but there are definitely rules. And I, I don't think any of us can claim perfection on applying them because these situations, they're complex, location, how public it is, who the person is, what the teaching is. So it, it's complex, but those are the very things that we need to stop and think about. So we start with some basic knowledge. Should I ever name a name? And the answer to that is a clear yes. Paul called out Phygelus, Hermogenes, Hymenaeus, Philetus, heretics. Paul did it. And the Bible names names constantly. It names the names of bad kings. It names Satan. It uses names, but not nilly-willy for no purpose. So what are the rules to this? Well, it starts with, who are we talking about here? Let's say that I hear something that John MacArthur said that maybe sounds a little wonky. I am going to be extremely cautious about how I approach this subject, giving that man who has certainly earned it the benefit of the doubt. Now, if you tell me Benny Hinn said something wonky, well, it doesn't, it's like no surprise and I can name his name because he just fits into the heretic camp. Now, 
there are people of different shades between John MacArthur and Benny Hinn. Who are we talking about here? Second, what is the issue? Is it a cardinal doctrine, an essential of the faith, or a secondary or tertiary doctrine? I need to think about that. Third thing that I need to think about, where are we at in the process? Has this been adjudicated? Uh, you know, we, we get these cases online. I just, I just saw that a megachurch in Texas has some ministry, youth minister who is being charged with a sexual crime with some kid at the church camp. Okay, do I know if that guy's guilty? No. Do I know if he's in? I, I don't know what he is because I don't know the case. Furthermore, another consideration is, is this my business? I mean, really, do I have any business involved in a local church matter and activity? For the people who do blogging or they do a radio program, the question that needs to be asked and answered is, by talking about this and disseminating this news, am I making things better or worse? Do people really need to hear about a preacher in Paducah who suddenly starts claiming to speak in tongues? No, they don't. I mean, no. Now, let's just say somebody national, that a story breaks on them. If the story is widely disseminated, and it's you've got to use some, some sort of metrics for that, but if it's widely disseminated, then you can talk about it. But if it's not, don't spread the story. Furthermore, let's just say that I conclude, yeah, everybody knows about this. Everybody's talking about this. That doesn't mean you have to talk about it. Ask yourself the question, can I contribute something helpful to this? Because if you're just going to do nothing but, yeah, how's about that guy and what he did, I should have known it. I saw his sermon once. You know, I saw that guy at a conference and, you know, I don't think he treats his wife very well. You are not helping anything. The goal of discernment isn't just a hack at somebody. It is to be loving the false teacher by pointing out to them their error. It is to be loving toward the truth, God's word, and it is to be loving toward the sheep that they don't get devoured by this wolf. So if you're not able to do that, then you have no business talking about it. And the last rule that I would say, which really is the first rule to all of this, Andrew, and this goes back to John 7 versus Matthew 7. If I've got an attitude toward this teacher, an ax to grind, my heart isn't primarily consumed with a passion for the truth, defending God's word, the soul of the false teacher, and the care of the sheep, then I get, turn off your mic, put down your keyboard, and stop until your heart is right so that you judge with a righteous judgment. Those are the basic rules. Those are some excellent, excellent rules and, and advice for folks. I, I, I think it'd be good for most of us who do podcasting, most of us who blog, who do sometimes, not all of us do it all the time. There are some ministries that that's, they just focus on that. But even for those of us who focus more on teaching, but once in a while get into to that, to, to think through those rules before we go out naming names. Well, Look, this, this, this is an easy business, and it requires that you, you maybe don't get to talk about the fresh news story today. You might need to take some time to work through these things, think through these things. And remember, another rule of discernment is where is, this, where is it at, this particular story or issue? Where is it in the process? Did I just read about it on Christian Post? 
the accusation for the for the the perverted youth worker in Texas. Okay, is that all the information that I need to know? Where is is has he been arrested? Now, is the court going to take a look at this to see if this is true? Because I don't want to jump to judgment on this, and we need to remember that these stories happen in time. And Andrew, this now is where it gets trickiest when it comes to discernment. This is. This is hands down the most difficult aspect of being a wise discerner. It's recognizing that some stories require unfolding. Let me, let, me, let me give an example of that. You hear about a famous preacher who's, uh, who's being accused of saying something, and for whatever reason, your response is, man, I kind of always knew it about that guy, or yeah, that doesn't surprise me totally. Hold on a second. We consider somebody who is orthodox in profession to be a brother. That is our starting place. We should hope for unity as much as we do for correct discernment. So I want to be asking myself the question, this guy, where are we we really at in the process? Okay, he said something I don't like. I've rendered a verdict that he's guilty. Now let's just say you... You think he's guilty a month ago, and it turns out four weeks later that you were right. You should have waited until that fourth week to know that you're right. Because these, we've got to let some of these stories play out a little bit, recognizing that somebody that we give a thumbs up to because our starting place is there a brother, that can change. And that doesn't make you a rotten discerner. That makes you a mature Christian. So remember, and different Christians are going to have different takes on this, that just because you think that the person really is guilty of some sort of high crime, until you know that, assume the best, which means until there's something definitive, we can have cautious fellowship, wise and prudent fellowship, depending on the issue, because we assume and we hope for the best that this person is misunderstood, got bonked in the head, the anesthesia from the dentist office hasn't worn out. Something is, there's got to be a reason for this. I hope for the best. And I always try to give the benefit of the doubt to a brother until it is definitive. All right. So something that most people don't want to talk about is that same scenario you, someone went out and said something. What if they're wrong? What should be the response of the person that does discernment, does something publicly, and says something wrong about somebody? Well, it, it should be the exception rather than the rule. That's for sure. I mean, we can all biff it. There's no question about it. But if you're wrong, it's probably because you've jumped the gun. Andrew, if I could, let me let me give an example of that last point I was trying to make because it's it's a complex issue when we judge and understanding that there's a process and, and until it's really clear the person is a heretic, we don't judge them as such. Right now, one of the big debated issues is the social justice issue. And here's here's what we've seen is that some people signed the Dallas theological statement, other people did not. And some people, therefore, would say that everybody who didn't sign it, that, that's just heresy. All right, here's a question. Is social justice a different understanding on that? Is that a cardinal doctrine? Second of all, 
have we realized that different people in the social justice camp, that they have got shades of understanding? I have seen people throw perfectly fine theologians underneath the bus because they have a differing opinion on social justice. And we don't even know for sure where that person stands. We need clarity. And look, I, there are guys that are being judged, I think, prematurely. Guys like Al Mohler is being prejudged here. We need, we need more information. We don't know where. Look, if Al Mohler comes out and goes, Mwahaha, I've been deceiving you all along. I'm a Marxist communist. Well, okay. Then, then we've got something to judge. But until then, look at the man. Look at his history. Look at the issue. And remember that these things need to play out in time before we judge. And that goes for Mark Dever. It goes for David Platt. Now, there are some people in the social justice that are making it pretty clear that they have got some major theological issues. Judge those. But sometimes we need to wait for good brothers for all of the truth to be revealed before we render a verdict. Okay, so, so say I, I rendered a verdict. And yeah. my verdict was incorrect. I went out and I went public with it. Yeah. What should I do now that now that it's shown that I was incorrect about it, what should be the response of the, the person doing discernment that is wrong? How should they now correct it? Oh, would you like to know what I'm doing right now, Andrew? <laughs> sure. I'm practicing self-control because I remember the first time I heard this analogy and I went, ooh, that's profound. And then the 17th time, it's like, oh, stop it with this illustration. So I'm trying not to use this illustration, but I'm going to. This is, this is the woman who is spreading gossip about somebody in the church because she thinks she has the gift of discernment, which to a lot of people means, I just got a feeling about this, and they practice no rules. She's spreading gossip specifically about the pastor. So the pastor calls her in. And, and confronts her with it, pointing out her error. Then he takes her up the bell tower with a pillow, and he cuts open the pillow, the feather pillow, and he scatters the feathers to the wind. And he said, that's what your lies about me have done. You can't get those, you can't round up those feathers again. You have started a forest fire, and it can't be put out. That's how destructive bad discernment and gossip is. So I think we need to start out by, re by remembering that, that, wow, if we say things wrong about somebody, you better work as hard as you can to collect those feathers and put out that fire. You need to probably spend more time cleaning up the mess that you made than you did actually creating it. We're talking about somebody's reputation. We're talking about a ministry that somebody has been trying to build we got to do our best to clean that up. And it's not just that, hey, look, it looks like I got a couple of details wrong here, but moving back on to the story about Donald Trump or whatever it is, that's not enough. It should be as public squared as the actual accusation was. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I tried to illustrate what you said with your illustration there with my kids. So I did a, a thing with them one night. I gave them each a tube of toothpaste. And I, I said, we're going to have some fun. You have, you have 30 seconds to get all the toothpaste out of the tube. Yeah. And they both did it in less than 30 seconds. Boom. Yeah. My, my son being real smart, he went and got a knife, just put it on the end and just ran it along the table. 
got it out real quick, a little bit all over the table. And then I, I basically said, okay, you got, you have three minutes to get it back in. Now it worked wonderfully for my daughter because she kept trying to stuff it in at the same end it came out. My son looked at it for a couple seconds, thought about it, went, how did they get it in the first place? Ah, so he went and grabbed a pack of sciz- a pair of scissors, snips off the back end, and starts shoving it in. <laughs> wow! But so I he, thought of that. yeah, wow. so he, <laughs> that's the problem when you have an intelligent son, right? <laughs> he just he thinks outside the box. But the the point is still there: is that you you can't get it all back in. And but what did he do? He did everything he could to try to get as much of it back in. And and I, I would agree with you that we should do it if it's if we do something public. However, we sin or you know, say something wrong. I think at the same level, it needs, like when I do something, I say something and I'm, I'm wrong. Even if I, like say I'm gossiping, say, say you and I have a conversation, I gossip to you. And then I find out that I'm wrong about who the person I gossiped with. Well, my standard way of doing it will be to go back to you, even though I could like to save face, not even raise it to you that I was wrong. But if someone comes to me and corrects me, now I got to go to you because I said something to you. I shouldn't have gossiped in the first place, but that that's, I kind of hold to us having that view. You know, and how long did it take your son and daughter to try to get the toothpaste unsuccessfully back in far longer than it takes to squish it out. So the, the analogy works beautifully. Yeah, well, I had to change it because I thought that after three minutes, they wouldn't get much of it in. My daughter didn't get as much in. My son didn't get it all in. So I at least changed the analogy to say that, you know, once your words go out, he couldn't get them all back, even though he tried and it took a lot longer than... Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, here's... here's Maybe this is falls underneath the category of discernment tip. Sometimes, let's say, I've seen this with discernment ministries. They disagree with somebody who has a reputation that is pristine. And so they now suddenly, they have some sort of a disagreement. And how many times have we heard this? Let me begin the program by telling you how much I appreciate Dr. John MacArthur. He's been a faithful, I have benefited so much from him. He's been preaching about opening up a seminary and he's got the Master's Academy International, the commentaries, he's just been a wonder. But recently he said, Hold the phone, Henrietta. And then it's a disagreement about this or that. I'm going to assume it's obviously a secondary, tertiary issue. Here's another option. If if you're in discernment ministry, if you think that a high-profile guy, and remember, we really publicly should only be talking about the national high-profile stuff and not finding the bad sermon from the past or in Wyoming or wherever, we want, we want to be discerning the big stuff. So instead of going on and saying, I really love John MacArthur, and then taking out the machetes to hack him to pieces, how's about just teaching on the subject? You don't need to mention his name. You don't need to go to war against a brother. You don't need to besmirch him in any way, shape, or form. Because we want to honor our brothers and sisters, however long they've been in ministry, And so let's just say it's a disagreement on something that John said in a particular sermon. Then you can just begin your radio program by saying, hey, I want to talk to you today about this issue. This is how I see things. You lay out your case. That's why I think this issue is important. So stay tuned for our next segment. That is still teaching without bludgeoning our brothers who who shouldn't be bludgeoned. 
So in other words, teach on the subject, teach on the, teach the lesson. <clears throat> we shouldn't have the, the need or that great desire to have to name the name. Cause I, I do think there's an element where we want to name that name because it raises us up by lowering them, which is the issue. Well, that's, that's, that's a hard issue that we all have to, that's, that's what, you know, that's what sarcasm does. It, it brings somebody down so we can feel better. That's what Jesus is after in John 7. Judge with righteous judgment. Take that beam out of your eye. You work on your heart first. And you can be a discernment ministry that teaches without always using names, especially with faithful high-profile brothers. I, I, okay, let me, let me just give an example, Andrew. I'm going back to this social justice thing. A very high-profile social justice person it talks about the role of the Christian and the church in government, okay? And I, dis- I disagree with it. Do I need to say, today, this guy said this, and while I respect him, let me just tell you where he's got this wrong. I don't need to do that. I can just turn on the microphone and say, hey, everybody, we're going to talk about a tricky subject, and there can be good Christians on all kinds of sides of this issue. Let's talk about the role of the Christian in government, and then teach your thing. You can still teach without dragging everybody through the mud. That is if more discernment ministries would just practice that, wow, it would clean up a lot of messes. Yeah, it would. And I, I think <laughs> I think that uh, a lot of what we end up seeing is people trying to build a ministry off of trashing other believers. And, they, and you know what? Here's the sad thing, man. There's an audience for that, Andrew. Oh, click, clickbait works. I mean, it, it will. I mean, you, you can say things and it's like, well, I just got to know that gossip. And the reality is, is because it works in the world, the, the question the Christian should ask is, should we be doing it? John Calvin said, a dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. It's kind of sad these days that dogs understand what we don't. And a note to pastors, this is a very strong word from Jesus in John 10, 11 through 13, that if you're not willing to protect the sheep from the wolves, you're an interloper. Now, does that mean he needs to talk about every single thing that's out there in evangelical Christianity? No, it doesn't. But if he is so gun-shy about pointing out really bad, dangerous teaching, Jesus said, you're not really a true shepherd. So the answer to your question, should we be doing this, is yeah, absolutely. So uh, we, we've talked about a lot of this really does come down to her- hermeneutics. And so I want to give some plugs here because you have a new version of the Herman Who is out, <clears throat> which is a great DVD set. I encourage everyone to go to Wretched right now. Okay, not if you're driving, but remember to do it later. But go to wretched.org, go and get the Herman Who DVD series. And I'm going to play a commercial from our guest actually about another product that or another offering that we have at Striving Fraternity to help with hermeneutics.
The good news is Striving for Eternity would love to come to your church to spend two days with your folks teaching them biblical hermeneutics. That's right, the art and science of interpreting scripture. The bad news is somebody attending might be really upset to discover Jeremiah 29.11 should not be their life verse. To learn more, go to strivingforeternity.org to host a Bible interpretation made easy seminar in your area. I want to let you know about a special conference that you can attend with Justin Peters and Pastor Frank Mullis as the keynote speakers. The conference is the Sanctification Through Suffering Conference. That's right. The very thing most people don't want to talk about, they're suffering. Most people struggle alone because, well, they have depression or anxiety, and the reality is they don't want anyone to know about it. But you don't have to suffer alone. We have a conference designed to helping you understand how God can use your suffering for your sanctification, or maybe that you can help others as they struggle with the issue of suffering. Would you consider joining this conference? We'll have Justin Peters and Frank Moss, as I mentioned. We'll also have two breakout sessions by Pastor Joe Suazo, and for the ladies only, Colleen Sharp from Theology Gals will be giving a breakout session. Now, this is going to be held on March 15th and 16th at Chinese American Bible Church in Freehold, New Jersey. It is $40 to attend, but do not worry if you cannot afford it. There is a link for you if you cannot afford it or want to pay a different price. If you want to pay the $40 or donate more, we are charging $40 to get the speakers out. We're not looking to make money off this. All the money goes to the speakers. But what we are trying to do is know that there's some who cannot afford to attend, and yet they need the help. Some people have gone to strivingforeternity.org donate to just donate for this conference. You can do that if you want to participate and join. We're asking you give that. You can get all of the details at strivingforeternity.org slash conference-on-suffering. So go search for the Sanctification Through Suffering Conference. Make sure that you join us March 15th and 16th in Freehold, New Jersey, because there are so many people that suffer and struggle alone, and yet God can use your suffering or the suffering of others for the sanctification process. And you, by attending this conference, can help others in their sanctification. Ding dong! Jehovah's Witnesses. Ding dong! Mormons. Christian, are you ready to defend the faith when false religions ring your doorbell? Do you know what your Muslim and Jewish friends believe? You will if you get Andrew Rappaport's book, What Do They Believe? When we witness to people, we need to present the truth. But it is very wise to know what they believe. And you will get Andrew Rappaport's book at whatdotheybelieve.com. All right. So, so Todd, that commercial with the knock-knock has been played so often. I know someone interviewed you uh, at G3 for uh, the council podcast. And they started with the knock-knock because they heard it so much, thinking you hear it so much. (laughs) And you thought he was talking about door-to-door evangelism. You know, Andrew, could could we do something right now that is that that might make this imminently practical? Sure, I would because, love that. You know, we we've been talking about bloggers or or podcasters who are so called discernment ministries. Let's talk about discernment in our local church. 
because we are able and we should look we're to rebuke and exhort and encourage one another we're to teach one another so so there's discernment that goes on in every christian's life you don't have to have a blog you're discerning in your church and there are some people in the local church that do it just as poorly as some of these national discernment ministries so when do we judge things these are slightly different rules than than the other these are additional rules so this this is a scenario i included a bunch of these in that aforementioned book judge not matilda is a Christian who is growing in holiness. Week after week, you see her. She volunteers in the nursery. She attends two Bible studies. One Sunday, you pull into the parking lot of the church. You overhear Matilda speaking to her seven-year-old son rather sharply. Do you judge Matilda and bring it to her attention? And I believe the answer is no, you don't. Why? It's a one-off. At this point, now remember these things happen in time, but at this moment, that's a one-off. It's against her nature. And who of us is, as a parent hasn't had a sharp word that they would wish they hadn't uttered to their child? So I don't need to judge Matilda. Now, let's say it's Monday. I'm driving to work. I pull up next to Matilda's van and I can't hear, but I can see that she's just yelling at her son. It's Tuesday. You call Matilda to ask her for her grandmother's pound cake recipe. And before Matilda puts the phone to her mouth, you hear her scream, shut up! Mommy's on the phone, you brats! Now it's Wednesday at church. You watch Matilda fiercely grab her son's arm as she rips him out of the pew to take him back to the, church, to the back of the church to have a special chat. Now, should you judge Matilda? And I think the answer is yes, because you've seen now a pattern of sin. So I can judge Matilda, and the question is, how do I approach her? Do I approach it like a sharply-tongued discernment ministry? So let me just tell you about Ephesians 6, 4. You're not to anger your children, and what you're doing is really sin. No, I don't. Matilda is a sister. So I can pull Matilda aside, take her out to lunch, and say, Sister, I have been seeing you grow in so many ways You've been such a great student of the Bible. I can see areas of your life. Wow, God is bearing fruit. That's why I was kind of surprised to see several instances of you being pretty sharp with, with your children. Are you okay? Is everything all right? Can I help you? Now, that is a demonstration of the, of the judging with righteous judgment, taking the beam out of my own eye and lovingly approach another brother or sister because you see a pattern of sin and not just a one-off goof. Yeah, because, and I think a lot of times the pattern is what, I mean, that's what we're, we're fruit judges, as someone once said, and, and you're only going to see that after the pattern. Let me ask you this, because you, you do, even in your book, Judge not, even in the, the subtitle, it makes it clear that you see the churches in the role. You have this throughout the book. What is the relationship between being discerning, naming names, and the purity of the church? Uh, uh, everything. Remember Jude 3. We are to contend earnestly. The church and God's word should be held in such high esteem. That's one of our motivators to discern rightly. Now, I don't want to discern wrongly, because what am I doing then? Then I'm besmirching the word and the reputation of the church. But because I have such a high view of the word, the church, and God himself, 
I want to judge with righteous judgment because God cares about the church. God cares about the defense of his word. In fact, I would say this to people who don't like the idea of judging anyone or anything. To, to let a person speak blasphemously on behalf of God, I think, could be esteemed the greatest sin a man can commit. By saying, I speak for God, and then speaking wrongly, you're like an Old Testament prophet who gets it wrong. Why did God want them stoned? Because that person was representing God and speaking falsehoods. So when I see a teacher on one of these prosperity channels who's you know just steeped in this nonsense, I, they're being blasphemous. They are committing the greatest crime in the universe. And if nothing else, I should care about their soul and point it out and even name names. And going back to naming names, Andrew, there's a kindness in naming names to two different groups of people, the false teacher and to the Christian, the pastor, the teacher who is trying to be faithful when he hears somebody on some discernment program say, okay, so there's this pastor and he said something like this and this is what I think about it. Whoa, 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 whoa. Are you talking about me? Tell me, please. I want to know because if I'm doing something wrong, I want to repent of that. It is a kindness to name names to the false teacher and to the true teachers in defense of the of the character of the church and God's word, recognizing that false teaching is the highest crime a man can commit. Okay, so do you do you see the church having some responsibility in you know what you call the theological train wrecks and the you know the the, the wonky evangelical movements is the is the church responsible for some of the craziness that we've seen because they lack discernment well I want to be careful with that because uh, to make a statement I, I think about my own church bible-based church faithful preaching down the street, you know, you've got the, the, the cuckoo house where they're, you know, swinging on the chandeliers and using motorcycles to jump over the pastor's head. Is my church responsible for that? I, I don't think so. But when we don't preach to the sheep and warn them about such things, that's where I think the church's primary responsibility is in teaching, guarding the flock and not dealing with every wonky church that's in town. So then we see a responsibility, though, with the discernment and the church. What role do you see the holiness of God playing in discernment? Well, I, I, you know, as soon as you ask that question, three words come to mind for me, and that is central interpretive motif. Every Christian should have one, and, and I'm not saying that one is righter than the other. I think it is. But I'm not going to, you know, slander somebody because they don't agree me about the central thing. What is the what is the big thing about God? What is the big thing about how this universe is operating? What's the point of all of this? So now I'm going to, you know, come up with a list of attributes of God. What's the what's what's the big thing here? All right, He's loving. He's kind. He's generous. He is mercy. He is righteously indignant. He's all of those things. So what's, what's the big thing? And I think the answer to that question, what is 
the central interpretive motif when I think about God, the answer is the threefold, holy, holy, holy. That's, that's, God is holy. And his word is a reflection of him. So when somebody mangles his word, they're mangling God and they're marring his holiness. So I want to see things the way that God sees them and that a besmirching of his word is a besmirching of his character that is holy, holy, holy. And I want to jump in and speak out. And again, I will say this, Andrew, it is a kindness to the false teacher to do so and call them to repentance. It is a love of the false teacher. It's a love of the sheep and it's love for the word and it's a love for God's holiness. So yeah, it does play a big part in this. Yeah, I think when your view is God's holiness, you're going to have a different perspective because I think what happens in a lot of churches is people want to just take the easy route out. They they root out. They don't want to they don't want to make things worse, create more of a problem. So you think if they ignore a problem, it'll it'll just go away. And what you see is you have a sinning person in the church. More often than not, when no one confronts them, they continue in it. I always argue you you are not doing them any spiritually spiritual good by not bringing the issue to them, because when you bring it to them, if they're Christian, if they have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, they should repent of that. But if they've gotten away with it time and time again, and then you bring it, they end up feeling like, who are you to, to judge me? Which ends up bringing up the next thing. When we talk about holiness, so often I get, and I'm sure you do too, when people will argue, well, who are you to judge me? How, how you, You're coming to me, but you're not perfect. So do we have to be perfectly holy to be able to judge others? Yeah, that, that, that's, that's a, you know, it, it seems powerful on the surface. I think it's kind of an emotional tactic. I could say back to that person, okay, do you parent perfectly? Therefore, you shouldn't have children. That's nonsensical. Of course, we don't do everything perfectly. And if we're doing it with an attitude of humility, with an esteem for God's holiness, we shouldn't be coming across as smug know-it-alls. And so when somebody says something like that, I see, look, we need an arbiter. We need a referee. Okay, fair enough. I, I want to make sure I'm doing this right. Let's open up our Bibles. Let's see what God says about judging and figure this out together because we are commanded multiple times. That's where we started this program, Andrew. We're commanded to be right judgers. So let's let the Bible be the arbiter recognizing that we are flawed. We don't do this perfectly. Let's help one another in this effort. But to say that we shouldn't judge because we don't nail it 100% of the time, uh, that, that's, that's just to contradict what the Bible clearly teaches. I agree. So after I want to play a commercial. After that, I want to play a game with you, one that makes it easy on you, but I'm sure you're going to love. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting here with bated breath. <laughs> Looking for strategies that will help you engage in meaningful conversations with members of the Mormon Church? Well, if so, take a look at Sharing the Good News with Mormons, a new book produced by Harvest House Publishers and edited by Mormonism Research Ministries' Eric Johnson and Sean McDowell. Sharing the Good News with Mormons includes 24 helpful essays from two dozen Christian apologists, scholars, and pastors. Pick up your copy at the Utah Lighthouse Bookstore or order directly from mrm.org. And you can also get that at strivingforeternity.org in our bookstore. I am one of the 24 authors of that, which was a privilege to be part of it. My chapter in there is Open Air Evangelism. 
And I did make a distinction between that and open-air preaching. But if you want to get that, it's a good book. Even if you say, well, I don't talk to Mormons. It's a good book, even if you just enjoy evangelism, because you have 24 different tactics that people use to outreach to Mormons. Many of them apply to reaching to anyone, atheists or anyone else. So you get some good ideas from that. Nice thing is, each chapter is about six pages long. You can read any chapter in any order because I didn't get access to any of the other chapters until I got the book. But Todd, I want to play a game with you. And I know I know that you listen to the rap report every week, right? Oh, are you kidding? I listen actually every day, Andrew. Well, we do we actually do have a two minute daily, uh, which is only two no, minutes. I just long. listen to the same broadcast seven times. <laughs> So it's, it's sort of like most of the songs we sing in church. You know, here's here. Yeah, exactly. The same, the same sentence, frankly. The, this, I have to confess, I don't know that I listen to any radio or podcasts, not because I don't like them or you or think that they're bad. I just don't have time to That's do right. that. I would love to do that, but I just can't. Yeah, I, I if if I would sleep normal hours, I probably wouldn't be able to, but being that I don't sleep, uh, I, I have, I have that advantage. So I want to well, play a game. Huh? You know, there, there, there's, there's benefits to being a night owl, I guess, or whatever. There's a name for people who can't it's, sleep well. It's insomnia. And, I, and insomnia is different than like, I just don't require a lot of sleep. I, I get, my wife actually made me promise that I would sleep every night when we got married. And so I try to sleep at least three hours a night. She's been concerned and wants me to move it up. So I've been trying to work up to getting more sleep. I just go to sleep when I'm tired, wake up. So I typically go to bed somewhere around two, three in the morning and I wake up at seven. Wow. Let, let me, let me share this in an effort to run out the clock so we don't have to play this surprise game of yours. <laughs> I Ray comfort when we were, you know, we were, I think we were in New York city and we were out on the streets and it was like a really long day. And, and, and we're like, okay, are we ready? Are we done witnessing to people? Because it's like, it's like shooting fish in a barrel in New York City. There's just pagans everywhere that you can talk to. And Ray said, Winston Churchill. I'm sorry, what? I need to do a Winston Churchill. I just sit in a chair like Winston Churchill did, and I put my car keys in my hands, and then I fall asleep. And then when my hand... Let's go. It drops the keys to the floor, waking me up. And it might just be a moment or two of sleep, but it resets my brain so that I can get back at it. And I was like, that's ridiculous, Ray. <laughs> and then I tried it. It works, dude. Have you ever just like a minute or two nap to reset your brain? It's amazing. Yeah, there's actually a podcast I listen to called Curiosity. It's, it, they do a lot of, it's a secular podcast. They seriously believe in evolution, because it, but they actually did a show on, on mini sleeps. But, uh, but I know you want to avoid the game. It's one where I have all the pressure. So okay. I'm, I'm going to introduce the game. It's time now to start the spiritual transition game. All right, Todd. So here's how we play this game. You are going to give me something. Whatever comes to your mind, and that could be scary, and I have to live, unedited, transition from whatever you give me to the gospel. The reason we play this game is because most people are more willing to share the gospel when it gets into spiritual discussion, and yet it's how do you do that transition? Can we talk about football and get to the gospel? And I argue you can. My pastor taught us to do this as leaders in the church, 
we used to have to do this every week is he'd give us an object. We'd have to transition either to a spiritual conversation or to the gospel because we can make gospel conversations. We have to wait for the Lord to open the opportunity. I believe with training and practice, we can make every conversation into a gospel conversation. So that's why we play this game to encourage people that you too can make any conversation a gospel conversation. And so we end up having people give me hard things to do that with, and I'm sure Todd will. So Todd, give me anything that you're thinking, anything that may be in your your office or, or around you, and I have to try to transition to the gospel. My dog, Charlie, who's 14 years old, pretty much on his last leg, is curled up in a ball, sleeping soundly at my feet in my office. That's a peaceful thought, right? I mean, when as dog lovers, and clearly you're on the proper side of this, you're not a cat lover, you're a dog lover, so that's good. As <laughs> I just upset half the audience. But the reality is that that's a peaceful thought. We, we have a, a dog sitting there quietly, just curled up. It looks peaceful. And yet, as you said, it's your dog, Charlie, is on its last legs. And even though at the moment, Charlie may look very peaceful and look like everything is at rest, you know that there's things going on inside due to aging and failing of the body that's causing him to, though he looks restful on the outside, inside, he's on his last leg. You know, we, as human beings, we do this a lot. We, we put a face out for others to think that everything is good and peaceful. And Facebook, everybody is great. They're doing wonderful on Facebook. They always present themselves as being great, but inward, they're struggling. They're suffering. And the reality is there's a cause of that suffering. That what brought suffering about was the fact that Adam and Eve, our federal head, rebelled against God. And in that rebellion, they brought sin into the world. And that's why we suffer. But God made a way of escape. Even though we break his law and we suffer consequences of sin, God himself, fully God, fully man, Jesus Christ came to earth and died on a cross to be a payment of sin that we could be set free. So that's how I would go from your dog, Charlie, to the gospel. (laughs) So I've got this marble bookend that my brother gave to me after his trip to Mexico. Well, I'd have to see the marble bookend now. <laughs> it's, it's shaped like a horse's head. <laughs> um, I'm trying to picture that. See, Todd didn't want to play a game. Now he wants to go for more. <laughs> no, no, no. I want to go for blood on this deal. Okay, I've, I've got a question for you, though, Andrew. Yeah. When we're in a conversation with somebody, I, I, I fully appreciate and endorse the idea of, hey, listen to what people are saying. You don't wait, need to wait for the door to open. Just listen and just walk through it. But are there times when some things are said where it's like my segue to get from the natural to the supernatural, from the physical to the spiritual realm would be so preposterous that I should just wait for them to say something else? Yeah, when I'm on the street, I usually continue going. I had I was in San Francisco. My wife and I, we were talking. To, I started the conversation with a woman. She had purple hair. And the way I started it was... Not to, you know, you have your book out, What Time is Purple, that people are giving away, that someone else can get it wretched, but she had purple hair. And I just, I started, I said, I go, what is it you do that as a living that you can have that color hair? It looks great. You know, and that immediately it starts on that she's putting out there. She wanted to talk about, she was, she's an artist, does graphic arts. Well, I started a couple different ways to figure out how am I going to transition? And it, it, I thought I just got to a point of how I can transition to the gospel after three or four what I felt were failed attempts. And all of a sudden, a guy walks up, and that was the guy she was waiting for at the train station. And so 
my opportunity was then shot. Uh, so I thought, and he, we start talking with him and, you know, he's just like, so what are you doing in town? Cause I already said I was from Jersey. And I said, well, I'm, I'm here because I'm speaking at a Christian conference. Uh, we're talking about evangelism. And so let me, so I just transitioned at that point. I said, so let me ask you, what do you think about Jesus Christ? So all of my attempts failed, but doing more of what I, I did, did played this game with Ray Comfort. I forget what I gave him his object lesson, but, but you know, your, your marble horse head, <laughs> you know, he would just go, speaking of marble horse heads, you know, do you consider yourself to, you so to be a good person? You know what? <laughs> <laughs> Only Ray can do that. Ray can get away with that. <laughs> yeah, but you know what, though, Andrew? Look, I, again, I love the idea of being a good listener and naturally moving it into the realm of the spiritual. Love that. But there's also, we need to remember that if we don't have that perfect opportunity to do so, there you can, first of all, you can just bring it up out of the blue. Most people aren't going to stop and say, hey, wait a second, you didn't have an appropriate segue there. And you can also use events in the news. Hey, so-and-so died. Boy, I'll tell you, that's tragic, isn't it? What do you think happens to somebody after they die? Boom, you're there. It's almost Easter. So it looks like there's some Easter lilies in that store. What do you think about, do you believe in Easter? What do you think Easter is? Christmas is a great time. Thanksgiving. What are you thankful for? And to whom do you give thanks? And, and, and Andrew, this is my confession. I don't care how sweet my segue is. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're clunkers. Either way, I still have this apprehension inside of me. It's like, oh, here, here we go. I think that's the most difficult part of the conversation is simply moving it from one realm into the other. Once you get into the realm of evangelism, that's a piece of cake. And that's why that's why we try to play this game each week as, or as many times as we can. We actually have a whole YouTube videos of, of us doing it with folks. Because of the, that fact, people feel comfortable when it gets spiritual, when it's on spiritual topics, something we know and understand. And so, so let me, let me uh, ask some questions of you. Uh, I want to be able to give you some time to talk about Wretched as well. But if you could go back in time to before you started in ministry and gave yourself some advice, what would that advice be to the young Todd Friel? Uh, to clarify, because it's an important question, are you talking about prior to my conversion? Well, as a no, believer, like, prior to ministry. Prior to ministry. Uh, well, um, I would suggest uh, number one, make sure you're actually saved, uh, because when I, when I was studying to be a pastor, I wasn't. So I think that probably is a good place to start. If I'm going to go into ministry, let's make sure that I'm saved. Um, second of all, boy, I'll tell you what I, what I wish I had grasped then, and it's, it was nothing but immaturity. You know, the, adi the attitude that I've got this all figured out. I should be the one who is telling everybody what to do because I certainly know everything. Now watch your pride. Get, just jump behind somebody who's more mature and watch them and study them and grow. And then, because you'll, you, you don't want to have to take back a lot of stuff that you said as, a, as an immature person. So if you, get, if you get saved, don't rush into ministry. Give it some time. Work with your elders in your church to see if you have the qualifications. And then, Andrew, I'm, I'm not sure that this is going to be specifically to your point, but I was recently asked to write a letter 
to a fellow who's, who's being commissioned into ministry. He's going to become a pastor. So I had to think, okay, what advice would I give to this soon-to-be elder? And I chose 1 Timothy 3.8, which says, deacons, likewise, be dignified. Okay, so first of all, it's addressing deacons, but it says likewise. So the assumption is this also applies to elders. Be dignified. That is an aspect that I think if a young person can grab that and focus on that, wow, will that propel you ahead light years of your peers and send you to places and into ministry opportunities you never even dreamt of. This doesn't mean you walk around with an ascot around your neck with your nose up in the air, I'm dignified. No, it means you comport yourself like a godly man. Okay, let's just say, so I can follow my rules of discernment. There's a guy on Home and Garden TV. Do you ever watch it, Andrew? No. Okay, so you're a bad husband. So I'm watching the HGTV with the missus, and there's a show on. It's a husband and wife, and it's it's one of those, you know, we, we they get the house and they fix it up, like every other show on the on that network. Well, this guy is just a clown. He just, and I mean like a doofus, just bad jokes, acting immaturely, doing things. His wife is like, quit acting like a child. That's my advice to somebody who's aspiring to ministry. Stop acting like a child. Model dignified. Be earnest. Be zealous in your studies. Be faithful to the word. Don't you know, it's, it's at some point in life, you got to stop wearing a jersey with another man's name on your back. I'm not saying you need to wear a tuxedo, but dress like a man, walk like a man, act like a man, carry yourself like a dignified, godly man. And I fear, Andrew, most pastors overlook that in an effort to try to be likable, cool, and attractive. Mm. And I think it has the reverse effect, as we've seen the statistics, pastors when it comes to trust in the eyes of the American public, they're right above another profession that begins with P, prostitutes. That's how people esteem it. Be dignified so that when your sheep are in trouble, they will call you. I find it hard to believe that somebody who receives a stage four cancer diagnosis is going to go, you know, I got to call Pastor Skinny Jeans. He's got whipped cream tricks. They don't call that guy. They want the dignified, earnest, sober-minded man. So play the man and be dignified. So if, if you could change one thing in the evangelical church, what do you think would be the most important thing to change? What would you want to see changed in evangelicalism? Stephen Furtick, because of what he represents. He, he, he represents a broad swath of problems. He represents the prosperity gospel. He, he represents the attractional model of church. He represents increasing tinges of new apostolic reformation teaching. Uh, I, I would say what I would like to change is all of these pastors who are showmen, I would have them get out of the business and find a new way to make a living, but stop besmirching the word of God with your shenanigans and your tomfoolery. We don't need gimmicks. We don't need gizmos. We don't need entertainment. The gospel doesn't need your help, nor does Jesus Christ. So if you don't take this earnestly and seriously and act in a dignified manner, it's time for you to go. We could wipe out all of those pretend pastors 
that would make a pretty big difference in the evangelical church. It would shrink it a lot, too. Yeah, it would. Well, listen, folks, we're going to be giving away five copies, signed copies, of Todd Friel's book, Judge Not. Now, the way we're going to do this is if you share this episode, whether it be on Twitter, Facebook, wherever, put hashtag rap report, that's rap with two Ps, hashtag rap report, and share this episode. We will pick five winners that we will send to you a copy, a signed copy of Todd's book. But with that, I'm going to also ask you guys to help me out with something. Because some of you know the battle that I've had with Justin Peters. When Justin Peters wanted to give me a set of DVDs, <laughs> well, I wasn't going to do that. I was going to pay for the DVDs. And many of you saw the, the fun battle we had at Shepherd's Conference. And you can go to justiniwin.com. I think it's .com, not .org. Justiniwin.com. And you can actually see. You could see me choking Justin Peters out, and then you could see Justin Peters choking me out. Both of them are very funny. There's actually a video explaining the backdrop, but here's the thing. Todd Friel needs the same treatment. So it is time for a hashtag, just, uh, instead of Justin, I win. I want all of you to donate. Go to wretched.org. There's a donate button. Now, they don't let you put a thing in there like Justin does where you could put hashtag Todd, we win. That's what we're going to call this one. Hashtag Todd, we win. I want every one of you to help me pay for these books by donating to this great ministry, Wretched. So I want everybody to go out, be a gospel partner. Don't just give a one-time donation. I want all of you to go to the donate page and do that. If you want to share, you could share it and say, hashtag Todd, we win, and put that in. There's a reason it's not Todd, I win, it's Todd, we win, because I have some other plans to up this game on Todd. We want to get a ton of donations to Wretched. I want all of you guys to help me with this because him just giving us five books for us to give away to you guys, no, we, we want to bless him more than he blesses us. So I'm, I'm begging all of you to go to wretched.org, hit the donate button, do not hit the one-time offering, hit the gospel partner one, hit the one where you can donate month after month because, well, basically they have bills month after month. So hit the one that says reoccurring donation so you could be a gospel partner. And then if you want to get the bragging rights over Todd, make sure you, you, could, you could hashtag and say, Todd, we win. <laughs> so he knows the books have been paid for. Because we, uh, you know, he's just not letting me, I, he, he purposely didn't have a booth at G3 so that I couldn't, you know, I, w- I was looking for you, Todd. What I, what I told Al I was going to do was use my reverse, I was going to use reverse thieving techniques. I was going to try to slip the money in your pocket, you know, while giving you a hug, but I couldn't find you anywhere. I had the money the whole time just waiting for the time when I would see you. Or I was going to slip it in your pocket and then email you later and say, hey, you got some money in your pocket. <laughs> okay. Two responses to you, mister. First. Hey, that's mister, mister, mister to you. All right, Mr. 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 Rappaport, you you have much for which you need to repent. <laughs> Number two, thank you. That's very kind. It's it, that's that's it's it's very kind. It's just a, you're you're a sound ministry. So to give you five books, that ain't nothing. And for all of us to give you at Wretched for the great work that's going on there, uh, I like I said earlier, I do not know a better discernment ministry than Wretched. And I, I don't, I, and I think everybody should be listening to the podcast. I think everyone should be watching on the, on TV if they have access to it. Everyone should go to the website and where you can get access to all of that because now it's, it's all available. And so 
everyone should be doing that because we there's plenty of ways to learn how to not do discernment plenty of people doing it wrong there's few doing it right todd is doing it right and that is why i say you should be donating to them you should be supporting them you should be watching and listening to what they're producing that's very kind andrew thank you well, thank you, Todd. Thank you so much for coming on. I, I, it is a great privilege just to learn from you. I, I love the, the six points that you gave us uh, when it comes to discerning. You know, who, who are we talking about? What is the topic? Is it a secondary issue? Has it been uh, like clarified yet? Is it, has it been adjudicated yet? Is it my business? Uh, how's it, how widespread is the issue? And is my heart in the right place? I mean, those are six great things we should ask ourselves before we post something on Facebook, before we write a blog, before we do some, what we might want to call discernment, because sometimes it's really just gossip. So thanks for coming on, Todd. A privilege. Very important subject. Thank you for tackling it, Andrew. Anything that you want to share with folks about what's going on at Wretched? Yeah, we'd like to give you up to 20 copies of our new evangelistic booklet, What Time is Purple? We want to help and aid you in your desire to evangelize. Andrew, I think you can concur. to get Just to get started, if you've been kind of gun-shy about evangelism, having good gospel literature and just handing it to somebody and saying, hey, have you read this yet? That Look, that's, that's getting started, and we'd like to help you to evangelize people by sending you up to 20 copies of What Time is Purple. It's a great evangelistic book, and it's really nice, so that you can give it away. And if you happen to have a big outreach, I just received an email, some good brothers, uh, you know David Grantham in Louisiana. Now, we sent these to them on a pallet. They t- just today, they handed out 5,800 copies of what time is purple. So you got a big outreach, particularly to a campus. You go to wretched.org slash purple. You let us know about it and we will hook you up because we'd like to help you evangelize. That is such a blessing, Todd. I I hope people will do that. You know, look, 20, that's Monday through Friday, giving one book away a day for the whole month, which means they got to start buying more to give away next month. And, and the thing is, is why should you become a gospel partner with Wretched? Because you help them to do what he just said. You help them to give away materials so you can share the gospel and others can share the gospel. Yeah, our, our goal for this, Andrew, is uh, we want to give away one million copies of this booklet. Uh, it, it's, it's a beauty. I mean, the, the graphics, the colors, there's graphics and illustrations on the inside. It's like 42 pages long very readable. The kids on university campuses devour them. They love these booklets, and we'd like to give away a million of them. So if you'd like to be the hands and feet of this initiative, just go to wretched.org slash purple, and we will get them to you lickety-split. So you're trying to get Tom Hammond on the uh, on the New York Times bestseller list by, by buying the books and <laughs> stuff? No, we'd have hired some New York agency to do that. <laughs> Like has been done before. Yeah, that's never been done before. Uh, yeah, anyone needs that. You know, Mark Driscoll's coming out with a new training manual on how to get me a New York Times bestseller. You know what? I just saw. Guess who opened up? A, he reopened his or opened up his new church in. Well, it's Andersonville, South Carolina. Do you know who I'm talking about? I'm guessing Mark Driscoll, but Perry Noble is back. Oh, in really? Yeah. Well, that wasn't very long. No, he's been fully restored now. 
He was never qualified. How can you requalify him? He never had it in the first place. Just did not match the biblical qualifications for an elder. Here's some good news, though. My understanding is since he left New Spring Church, it's actually improved quite a bit, and it's it's moving in a in a better direction. Dabo Sweeney of Clemson, you goes there, the football coach, and so my understanding is that it is at least a church that is recovering from its former senior pastor and is moving in a good direction. Yeah, you know, I met someone as I was traveling who started to attend there. They didn't win before, and and they said that the church has been moving in a really good direction. The, the folks who are there now are really more solid. Yeah, for sure, is from what they were saying, and uh, that's a good thing. Yep. No, we we should we should rejoice in that, and you know that that's kind of an, an interesting note, perhaps to end on, Andrew. You know, sometimes we can discern good things and not always the bad. That's very true. Well, thank you very much, Todd, for coming on. Yes, sir. This podcast is part of the Striving for Eternity ministry. For more content or to request a speaker or seminar to your church, go to strivingforeternity.org.